Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to continue with Genesis. We're in chapter 3. This is a very important chapter because there's some really consequential stuff that happened. I call it the choice. Let's get started. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Well, serpent here literally means shining one and is not the Hebrew word normally used for a snake, but in fact can mean a dragon. Well, this is consistent with other scripture which calls Satan that old dragon. Indeed, he is cunning. His ploy is to get us to think that we'll recognize him because of his black cape and hideously horrible appearance. When in reality, the scripture says he can appear as an angel of light. You see, Satan, whose character is wholly evil, whose perverted sense of joy comes through bringing death, destruction, and torturous bondage to sin into any life he can. He was once Lucifer, the light bearer, an archangel. The Bible says, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. That's Ezekiel chapter 28. You see, being perfect in beauty wasn't enough for Lucifer. Leading the heavenly hosts in glorious worship of the one true God wasn't enough. It would seem that he wanted to be like God in an evil and competitive way, to be an object of worship. Isaiah chapter 14 records, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, which means day star, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, that's hell, to the lowest depths of the pit. And here in Genesis, he slithered into the paradise of Eden with one thing in mind, 
to bring man into a destructive subjection to himself. Kicked out of his heavenly residence, and by the way, taking one-third of the angels with him who are now demons, check out Revelations chapter 12, verse 4, he entered the next best thing, Eden, heaven on earth, so to speak. There were the ones who had been made in the image of God, who God commissioned to subdue the planet and rule it. And he said to the woman, Has God said, indeed, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Cunning indeed. Who did he draw into a conversation? Eve. Why was this cunning? Well, remember that in Genesis 2, verse 17, God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve had not even been created yet. Thus, as far as we can tell, she had to listen to her mate to get the warning, which was a foreshadowing, if you would, of Christ, who said to the Father concerning his disciples, I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. That's John seventeen eight. Well, just as Adam passed the words of eternal life to Eve, so Jesus has passed to us the words of eternal life. Now it is up to us. Do we believe him? You know, Satan knew that Eve was indeed vulnerable. She was in that position because she was evidently near the forbidden tree and because she had a desire to be more spiritual. Now, regarding the former, I can't overemphasize the importance of putting distance between yourself and that which is a point of weakness in your life. We all have them. This deals with the whole issue of purity and holiness. As the church, the bride of Christ, we are to be spiritually chaste, virgins regarding evil and temptation. If you're hanging around the wrong crowd, the seductive secretary, the handsome boss, whatever is a point of weakness for you, you're going to get sucked into it and eventually suffer. I used to tell the children in my church, you can regard sin as a chocolate ice cream sundae, and here you are on a diet, so to speak, and you know that you shouldn't partake, but as long as you perceive sin in that manner, your heart is close in proximity to it. And sooner or later, guess what? You'll dig in. Reality, however, is that instead of an ice cream sundae, you know what? Sin is like a hot, steaming pile of manure, a real meadow muffin. Now, can you picture yourself just digging into that dessert? Ugh. When you realize sin is like that, you begin to put more distance between your heart and sin's allure. As for Eve's desire to be more spiritual, we'll discuss that in a moment. But Genesis continues, And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Uh-oh, look out. It's one thing to hear the voice of temptation. You know what? That's not sin. It's the dialogue with temptation that leads to sin. Here, Eve is speaking with the devil, setting herself up for a fall. She should have immediately gone to her husband, just walked away. The same is true for us. Genesis continues, but this is Eve speaking, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. 
You see, she was out of her league. She didn't have the story right either. That is, she had, if you would, a poor handle on God's word. God said nothing about touching the tree, not to Adam. As a result, she was defensive and confused. The devil had her right where he wanted her. Now, church, I say this to everyone, myself included, we need to get this down. Don't be playing around with the cow patties of sin. And when Satan puts temptation in your path, run to your husband. That's Jesus. Let him deal with it and be sure you've got your story straight. Know the word of God. Genesis goes on. Then the serpent said to the woman, Oh, you will not surely die. That was the bomb. The big lie. His tactic was to plant doubt in the woman's heart as to the true nature and character of God. Well, the same is true today. Satan is continually painting God as ruthless and hateful, the great cosmic killjoy of mankind, someone untrustworthy. These are total lies. We even call tornadoes and earthquakes acts of God in insurance policies, when as a rule, they're acts of nature, or Satan. This statement began thousands of years ago, twisting and perverting man's impression of the Father. In addition, he's done all he could to destroy the concept of fatherhood in general. Now, Christ came to reveal to us the Father. Nevertheless, apart from the inward work of the Spirit of God, we have enormous difficulty overcoming our sinful nature, which is to doubt the truth. We doubt His goodness, His love for us, His incredible grace, His long-suffering, and so on. Even after having spent two to three years with Jesus, Philip, his disciple, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's John fourteen eight and 9. So here it began. The corruption of the love relationship with the seeds of lies and doubt. Genesis goes on. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, it's true that God knows good and evil, and it was true that the fruit of the tree gave that discernment. But Eve got sucked into the same trap many people do when they desire spirituality, that is, to be like God, and it's in a wrong way. They esteem it to be a matter of power or position, something to be grasped, something that provides a spiritual edge over others. Even the disciples of Christ, on the very night of his arrest, were arguing who would be the greatest in his kingdom. But true godliness is not a matter of these. Rather, it's a heart attitude that is in submission to God's will. It's really humble. Let this mind be in you, says Philippians 2, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it something to be grasped, 
to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 5-8 Godliness is not getting an edge over someone and thus having a condescending perspective. It's a lot of self-righteousness. But rather, it's the servant heart, the humble heart. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. That's Philippians 2, 3. Godliness is far more than knowing good and evil. It's loving good and hating evil, submitting to good and rejecting evil. In doubting and disobeying the Lord, Eve was putting herself a billion miles away from the target of her desire, and Satan knew it. Eve was deceived, like many today who are seeking, quote, more of God, unquote, lining up to experience his touch, listening to shiny, glamorous speakers who have slinked onto the scene. There are many today who would do well to take heed to these lessons here. They would do well to run to their husband, Jesus, and listen again to his words. Well, Genesis goes on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, so King Solomon wrote. But from the beginning, this has been the trap of the world. As John recorded, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. That's in 1 John chapter 2. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And it was a tree desirable to make one wise. There's the pride of life. This tree represented all that the world had to offer, while the tree of life was symbolic of all that God freely offered to man. And Genesis goes on, So she also gave to her husband, and he ate. Hmm. As we've noted, Eve was deceived. Adam, on the other hand, ate for a different reason. You see, he had not conversed with the serpent, and he had heard directly from God about the consequences. Now, did he watch Eve and then think, hmm, she didn't die? Well, maybe, but I don't think so. God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And it's evident that all this happened rather quickly. In any event, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, Adam was not deceived. He made a conscious choice to eat what he knew would mean his death. And through this conscious choice, alas, he brought sinful mankind into servitude to Satan. It was here that he relinquished man's right to rule this world. Consequently, the devil took that scepter. Christ called him the prince of this world, 
and Paul referred to him as the God of this age. In fact, when the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, one of his temptations was to offer him all the kingdoms of the world, for he claimed that they all belonged to him. And you know what? Jesus did not refute this claim. So why did Adam do it? I'll suggest something because it fits the picture or foreshadowing of Christ. I suggest he may have done it for love. Hmm. Personally, I think he may have loved Eve too much to let her die alone or spend eternity without her. Now, if that is the case, this choice was a lack of confidence in God and an inordinate love for Eve that it superseded his love for the Lord. That's not the type of Christ. But this is. He chose to die rather than to live without her. Adam chose to go to the grave with his bride. Christ chose to go to the grave for his bride. Adam was overcome by the world. Christ overcame the world. On the tree of death, Jesus had you in mind. Christ, it says, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Hebrews 12, too, because sharing heaven with you to him was worth it. Genesis goes on. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I don't believe this is implying that beforehand they were ignorant of being physically naked. Rather, something happened to their perception. Nakedness was henceforth seen as evil, and consequently they tried to hide it. But the nakedness wasn't evil in and of itself. Remember that when God saw all that he had created, he said it was very good. Rather, the doubt and disobedience altered their perception, so that what was once good was now seen as evil. You see, that's what sin does. It perverts man's perception. It's interesting that they took fig leaves to cover themselves. It probably wasn't a bad choice since fig leaves would likely have been quite large in this environment, but it was obviously ineffective. Leaves just don't wear well, and they scratch, right? Seriously, that's the case with all the things we hide behind. A macho persona a prideful arrogance, insincerity or criticism of others, whatever we hide behind, it's flimsy and really doesn't cover our nakedness very well. They must have looked pretty silly sewing fig leaves together, but this is another impact of sin. It retards or impedes our clear reasoning. I'm sure that I've looked equally and even more ridiculous creating my own facades, and all those fig leaves we hide behind. Fundamentally, they're fruitless, aren't they? Remember God's first command to man? What was it? Be fruitful and multiply. Of all the recorded miracles of Jesus, think of them, there was only one that was destructive. On Matthew 21, the story is found. Jesus was looking for fruit on this fig tree, and coming to it, he found only leaves. As a result, he cursed it, saying, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. 
Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus answered and said to them, Surely I say to you that if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. That's in Matthew 21. His teaching was on faith, but it wasn't faith to obtain something. Look closely. It was on faith to remove something. Fruitlessness. Mountains of obstacles. The fig leaves just withered. In the same way, today, Christ would have us speak to the fruitless coverings we hide behind, the things which seem to loom large before us as hindrances to intimacy with him. Say, be removed. Naked, honest truth is what leads to the fruit he wants to produce in our lives. Galatians 5 refers to them. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Genesis continues, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. First, they hid from each other with the leaves, and then they hid from God amongst the trees. You know, people do the same thing today. They don't hide in the trees, but they hide behind Anger or hatred or selfishness or some other attitude, especially when they sense God has entered their garden. How many times have I been talking to someone about the Lord? Everything's going fine until I ask, so how about you? What's your relationship with God? Suddenly, they are like backpedaling, making excuses or leaving or barking at me for being too personal. They're hiding in the trees. Genesis goes on. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, God knew exactly where Adam was. So why did he ask? As you read the Gospels, you will find Jesus doing the same thing, asking a question for which he already knew the answer. You see, God didn't need to know where Adam was. Adam needed to know where Adam was. God was giving him an opportunity to confess his wrongdoing and repent. Also, it's evident that the Lord had an appointment, if you would, a time of regular fellowship with Adam in the garden. He belonged to God as a child belongs to his father. Now, you can almost hear the sorrow in his call, to which Adam responded. And Genesis says, So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here we see the second consequence to sin. The first was death. Both Adam and Eve died immediately, spiritually. The second is fear. Personally, I think it is Satan's number one weapon of bondage in people's lives. Fear of man, fear of pain, fear of death. But the Bible says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. That's in 1 John 4. Now, the scripture exhorts us repeatedly to fear the Lord, but this is not the same thing at all. Sin has given us such a poor impression of this, 
like the young mother who was having a difficult time with her seven-year-old, Billy. The youngster just didn't seem right. He was bent on being a rascal and wouldn't listen to her admonitions. Well, after much frustration, she went to the priest and said, Oh, Father O'Donnell, would you please help me? My boy Billy is incorrigible. He's always getting into trouble. Could you talk to him? He just needs a fear of God. Well, the priest was willing to help. And the next Sunday, after the services were over, he sternly took Billy into his office and sat him in a chair. He looked him straight in the eyes and said, Billy, do you know where God is? The little boy became very sober. The priest said again, Billy, do you know where God is? This time, the boy stiffened. For the third time, and with emphasis, he said, Billy, do you know where God is? At this, Billy's eyes got as big as saucers. He leaped out of the chair, ran out of the church, jumped into his mother's car, and with absolute silence made the trip home. Well, on the way, his mother thought, my, but didn't Father O'Donnell's words do the job? Billy's a changed boy. Well, as soon as they reached their home, however, Billy ripped open the car door, dashed into the house. Up the stairs, he ran to his big brother's room. He slammed the door behind him and ran to his brother's bed. On bended knee, he cried out, Joey, Joey, you got to help me. The church, down at the church, he gasped. They've lost God and they're trying to pin it on me. (laughs) This kind of fear is not what God wants us to have, however. To fear the Lord properly is to have a reverent respect and awesome love, such that you simply don't want to do anything to disappoint him. This fear awe is fueled by love. And he said in Genesis, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now keep in mind here that God did not need information. Adam needed to confess his error. You see, temptation draws us to the precipice. Sin pushes us over the side. And pride keeps us from grasping the lifeline of repentance that God throws to us. If the man had just admitted his error, oh, what a different story we might all be living right now. Now, may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast, and may you realize more of His grace today.